Well, this month marks the 500th anniversary of what is called the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, October 2017, is the month that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses or his 95 propositions. And it is said that when he put them on the castle church door in Wittenberg, that he did so on October 30th, 31st, because he knew that the next day was All Saints Day. And he knew that literate religious people would come together on on that day, All Saints Day, and they would be able to read and be challenged by his propositions. David Mathis rightly said of Martin Luther, Under God, you are a spark that set ablaze the kindling of centuries of error and abuse. By all accounts, the medieval church needed reform. The crown gem of justification by faith was almost in every quarter buried and in some parts completely lost. And what the reformers did as they compared church practice within the medieval church and the papacy, they, they, they came back to the scriptures alone, right, sola scriptura, and said, what does God's word say? as the final authority for faith and practice. God stirred men and women during this time period to confront idolatry, ignorance, and religious evil. You would wish that were an oxymoron, but unfortunately, it's not. Some of the greatest evils in the world have been done under the banner of religion. This morning, we'll consider one of the other five solas. Um, We've done Scripture alone. Grace alone, today is faith alone, and then Lord willing, next Sunday, Christ alone, and then the following Sunday, the last Sunday of October, God's glory alone. So I had Devin read James 2 for a reason. As you work through through that text, it seems to fall into contradiction against the teachings of the Apostle Paul in Romans or Galatians or Peter in 1 Peter or John in 1 John. Matter of fact, Martin Luther referred to the letter of James as an epistle of straw. Remember, I told you that even the great reformers have their shortcomings and we need to keep the spirit where we're not propping up these heroes unnecessarily high and to take on the spirit of John the Baptist and what he said about Jesus Christ, that he he Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So we can be thankful for their contributions without launching into some kind of worship of these of these men and women. Martin Luther wrote in 1522 in the preface to his German translation of the New Testament, quote, St. James epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, first Peter and first John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Luther said elsewhere about the book of James, quote, in the first place, it is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. It says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered his son, though in Romans 4, St. Paul teaches the contrary, that Abraham was justified apart from works by his faith alone before he had offered his son and proves it by Moses in Genesis 15. Now, although this epistle might be helped, and an interpretation devised for this justification by works, it cannot be defended in its application to works 
of Moses' statement in Genesis 15. For Moses is speaking here only of Abraham's faith and not of his works, as St. Paul demonstrates in Romans 4. Last sentence. This fault, therefore, proves that this epistle is not the work of any apostle. Very interesting. Luther had a huge problem with the book of James. More on that later. Faith alone. Faith alone. And I'll say right here from the outset that, that James does not contradict faith alone. He and the Apostle Paul are teaching the same thing from a different angle and against different enemies. Okay. First of all, what is the worst sin? That is how Mark Jones asks the question in his book, Faith, Hope, Love, the Christ-Centered Way to Grow in Grace. What is the worst sin? How would you answer that? He answers, the worst and first sin is unbelief. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve to doubt, to disbelieve, to make a faithless choice in opposition to God's reign. In Genesis 3, 1, it says this. The serpent asked, did God actually say? The temptation came down the lines of unbelief. And the serpent, and we know he's a lot more than a snake, that the serpent actually caused Adam and Eve to doubt God's word, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his care, to doubt his reign. Unbelief was widespread during the days of Noah. Unbelief spread throughout the centuries all the way up until the time of Christ. Nothing changed when Jesus went up to Nazareth, to his hometown. And listen to what he says. This is the Son of God. You know, we've been going through Revelation, and you see that picture of the vision of the exalted Christ in Revelation 1. I mean, what would it take to make the Son of God astonished? What would it take to make Jesus marvel? He goes to Nazareth, quote, Mark 6, 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. The Son of God was astonished at such dense, defiant unbelief. In Luke 24, 25, Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you know that, that it's actually unbelief that remains at the heart of our sin? Unbelief that, re, that, that remains at the heart of our anger? Unbelief that remains at the heart of our lust? of our defiance towards God and other authorities. Unbelief remains at the heart of our love for darkness rather than light. Like a cockroach who scurries when the lights are turned on, so are men who love darkness rather than light. Jesus says in John 3:19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. I love this prayer by Puritan John Ball, who wrote in his treatise of faith. He says, O oh Lord, I am grossly ignorant of your ways, doubtful of your truth, distrustful of your power and goodness, disobedient to your commandments. You have given rare and excellent promises in your holy word, but I inquire not after them, rejoice not in them. Cleave not unto them in truth and steadfastness. 
Settle not my heart upon them. Make them not my own. Keep them not safe. I think every genuine believer here this morning could actually pray what he just prayed. Because that's our heart. We realize in humility that we fall short of the glory of God. Unbelief is so serious, a sin, that Jesus, in explaining the work of the, the Holy Spirit to come, as a matter of fact, he says this, and this, this, is, this is a very staggering statement, but Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, it's better for you that I go where? That I go away. For if I, if I don't go away, I cannot send the helper to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, John 16, 7 to 9. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now listen to the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus uh, foretells to the disciples. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It doesn't say sins. Though the Holy Spirit does convict of sins, he says he will come and he will convict the world of sin. What sin? If you keep reading down in verse 8 or verse 9, it says concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This sin is so heinous and so serious that it takes the power of God's spirit to convince us that we are an unbelieving people. We are so blinded and so hard-hearted that it takes the power of God to crash in, if you would, and convince us of the sin of unbelief. What is the worst sin? The worst and first sin is unbelief. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible. It doesn't say improbable. It doesn't say unlikely. It says it's impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How does this compare then to the unpardonable sin? You ever talk to somebody who's wondered if they've committed the unpardonable sin? I have. It comes up somewhat frequently. And they're always wondering if somehow they haven't committed this unpardonable sin. Well, why would that be a fear? Because it's unpardonable, right? I mean, if there's a sin that can't be pardoned, that should cause distress. So what is that sin? I'm, just, I'm, I'm not having you turn to these, these scriptures now. I will have you turn to our primary texts. But listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30 kind of puts it into context for they were saying he, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. The quest study Bible, I don't know the quality of this Bible other than this particular explanation, which I found helpful. The Quest Study Bible explains this verse this way. Jesus gave the solemn warning in these verses to people whose hard-heartedness placed them on the brink of disaster. 
Blasphemy against the Spirit evidently is not just a one-time offense. Rather, and listen to this, it is an ongoing attitude of rebellion, a stubborn way of life that continually resists, rejects, and insults the Holy Spirit. That is what makes this an eternal sin. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not unforgivable because of something done unintentionally in the past, but because of something being done deliberately and unrelentingly in the present. Here's what it is. It is a stubborn and defiant unbelief against the Spirit's promptings in the face of God's mercy and kind revelation of Himself. That kind of unbelief is so severe, it is an eternal, unpardonable sin. Why? Because you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. You can't be regenerated without the Holy Spirit. And if you stand in defiance and rejection to the one who brings about regeneration, that is an eternal sin, unpardonable. And that level of unbelief is so severe and the heart is so hard that it actually attributes the works of the Son of God to demons. What is the worst sin? The worst and first sin is unbelief. That's the, there's the dark backdrop, okay? <laughs> what is the remedy for unbelief? Right. You wish that were a quiz question, right? Well, belief, right? The remedy for unbelief is belief. Well, not exactly. Yes and no. Uh, the remedy for unbelief is God himself. Because you're blind and you're dead and you have no desire for him. And Romans says no one seeks after him. There are, there are no true God seekers in the world unless God already stirs that heart to long for and look for him. Again, remember John 16, 8 to 9. See, the Son of God, his person and work is the answer. The Holy Spirit, his person and work are the remedy for the power of unbelief. John 16, 8 to 9. And when the helper comes, he will. Notice it's his work. He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And it's the Holy Spirit that takes the word of God. The Spirit of God takes the word of God and the Son of God's person and work. For example, John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. What are written? Everything in, in the Gospel according to John. All that is written for a purpose. What purpose? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. They're written so that you can have no doubt whatsoever that this man who walked the earth for 33 years is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the rescuer, deliverer from your unbelief. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I love this last statement. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So if nothing is more serious than the sin of unbelief, then nothing is more important than biblical faith. Nothing is more serious than sin and the sin of unbelief. Then nothing is more important than biblical faith. That's why of the five solas, there is one called sola fide, by faith alone. Let me, let me give you a, a glimpse and we'll move into our, our, our third question. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 11:20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. 
but you stand fast through faith. So what is the faith that saves? Right? We, we, we answered the question, what is the worst sin? Then we answered the question, what is the remedy for that? And it is the person and work of the Son and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the faith that saves? We're going to just kind of break this apart and have to sort of expose this because there are, there are some subtle nuances where believing people disagree. And there are some not so subtle nuances where it determines whether you're a true believer or not. Okay? Grace or merit? Now, we all know the answer to that. Right? We know it's grace because we already went through sola gratia. So it's grace alone. We know that. It's never merit. Um, but what is the faith that saves? Mark Jones answers this way. Saving faith is the spirit-enabled embrace of and resting on our faithful God in Christ for the redemption offered by him through the promise of the gospel. Okay? Let me repeat that. Saving faith is the spirit-enabled embrace of and resting on our faithful God in Christ for the redemption offered by Him through the promise of the Gospel. So, faith alone does not undermine grace alone. You can never, you can never explain or define uh, faith alone and at the same time take away from grace alone. Because once you allow faith to take away from grace, you have made faith a meritorious work. And it can never be a work. It can never be a righteous work that saves us. We have to be very careful to define what we actually mean here. Is faith a good work? Is faith a good, is faith a good work? Well, it's not a bad work. We, start, we can start there, right? It's not a bad thing. Jesus did come preaching in Mark 1.15, repent and believe. And so when we believe, we've actually, we've, we've exercised faith, right, in a command. Now we're obeying the command even of Jesus when he came preaching. And most Christians agree that faith is something we do. Do you agree with that? It's kind of a scary part of the sermon to start agreeing, right? Um, because you know something's coming. You just feel that, that tension building. Uh, is faith something we do? Let me ask you, does God do the believing for you? Okay, so faith is something we do. It's not a bad work. And it's something Jesus commands. Here's the danger. In nearly every religion, you can just, you can just list them all. Okay, well, just, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, you just follow it all out. In nearly every religion, people think that they are basically good and because of that premise, they believe they can contribute something to their salvation. Okay? This steals glory from God alone because now we have actually entered into thinking we're not as bad as God says we are and that we actually can cooperate in salvation with Him. And that says a lot. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of poor foundation underneath those two thoughts. It steals glory from God and gives it to us because if we can even do one bronze penny's worth of merit. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's God's vast treasure. And if we can add one cent, then we can boast. And if you add one cent 
to the eternal coffers of God's riches, you have stolen glory from God alone. Matter of fact, we can't merit salvation. We can't merit the merit of Christ. Because Romans 3.27 says, then what becomes of our boasting? I mean, if it's grace alone, then what becomes of our boasting? Paul says it is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. See, faith actually excludes boasting. It doesn't promote boasting. That's why we have to be very careful how we answer the question, what is the faith that saves? Romans 4.2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. So if faith merits righteousness, then we can boast about it, correct? Let me put it in a question form. You don't have to answer. I'm going to take you off the, the hook here right at the beginning. I'd rather you not answer. Why are you a Christian and other people are not? Well, some will respond because I believed and others did not believe. To that response, there's another question. Why do you believe and others do not? Is it because you are more righteous than the person who remains in unbelief, to which we would all say, no, of course not. Is it because you are more intelligent or more clever? And again, the reply is a strong negative. They will say something like this. God is gracious enough to offer salvation to all who believe and that one cannot be saved without that grace. Good. One more question. Is this grace then a cooperative grace? So, is the reason you are saved and others are not because you cooperated in salvation with God? Because you added something of merit to God? Because God now looks on you and says, no, He has merited it. He has done a good work. Therefore, He receives my salvation. See, it can't be cooperative grace if we believe grace alone. God's grace alone. Then what becomes of faith? So then what is faith? Some respond, man in his fallen state must reach out and grasp this grace by an act of the will, which is free to accept or reject. Some exercise the will rightly or righteously while others do not. Did you hear the danger, though? Because we're really close. But it just made this a righteous act of the will that merits the merit of Christ. So we need to hold up faith alone and grace alone. And actually, it's, it's beautiful. When you, when you get this and realize it's nothing that you can do. Nothing. And it has to be the work of God that comes in and saves you. Boy, that is a gift. That is a gift of God's grace. I'm going to have you, open, I'm going to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Pastor Matt read this for us at the beginning. And I actually want to look at this text and help answer some of these questions, especially this one. Is this grace a cooperative grace? Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. And as I read, highlight sort of the three appalling truths that Paul notes. 
So you can just count them in your head. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. First of all, and this isn't one of the three appalling truths, it is, it is sobering, but this text is a description of everybody. Not just, sort of not just some degenerate tribe, you know, over in the, the, the South Sea Islands. Or not just some, you know, sort of really depraved segment of society, you know, sort of the the inked up gang members who don't care for other people's life. No, this is talking about everybody. You, you, you and me sitting here this morning, we were dead in trespasses and sins. This is a biblical diagnosis for every human being. So the first appalling truth, we were dead. We were spiritually dead. When Adam and Eve chose to disbelieve They died. See, you know what else they disbelieved? When they disbelieved God's word, they disbelieved his warning about the consequence. And in that day, they died. It's the same thing that the father, when we looked at this text last week, the prodigal son was returning. Remember what the father had said? This, my son, was what? He was dead. Yeah, but he's still animated and he's still moving and he's eating, you know, pig slop. But he's dead. He's dead as he lives, in a sense. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And spiritual corpses cannot respond. Secondly, the second appalling truth is not only were we dead, we were enslaved. It's not like I was choosing good or bad or whatever. We were actually enslaved following the course of this world. Following the prince and the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. This was our life. This is our breath. This is our food. We were enslaved. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You know what Ephesians 2 does not leave room for is the fact that you had this freedom to move towards and choose God on your own. Because you're dead and you're enslaved. And because of that, the third appalling truth, we were condemned. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, understand something about God's wrath. God's wrath is the necessary response of a holy God to objective moral evil. It is measured. It is controlled. It is determined. It stems from His holy nature. It is a necessary response from an almighty judge. judge. It's a judicial response. As Romans 2, 5 to 6 but because of your hard and impenitent heart. Think about that, that phrase. Hard and impenitent heart. What is the worst sin? The worst and first sin is unbelief. And Paul's going to say in Romans 2, 5 to 6, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And up to this point, your works 
have been works of unbelief and your works have been dead and your works have been the result of being enslaved. And because of that, you're going to be condemned. So what hope is there? Well, let's go back to the question. What is what is the what is the faith that saves? So from Ephesians 2, is it cooperative? Do I get to enter into this and sort of be my own Messiah? Because I made the right decision somehow. Is it a cooperative grace? The answer is no. Let me read uh, the Century Dictionary's definition of a word that some of you may be familiar with, monergism. It says, in theology, monergism is the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is the only efficient agent in regeneration, the new birth, that the human will possesses no inclination to holiness until regenerated, born again, and therefore cannot cooperate in regeneration. Another definition states of monergism, it is the view within Christian theology which holds that God works through the Holy Spirit to bring about the salvation of an individual through spiritual regeneration, regardless of the individual's, there's the word again, cooperation. Okay. Now at this point, we're going to feel a little bit of a tension, uh, even, even in this group, uh, where I told you there are some subtle nuances where I think genuinely believing people can disagree on what is often called the order of salvation. Um, but let's go back to Ephesians 2, verse 4. We were dead, enslaved, condemned. Is it a cooperative movement where me and God get in this together and, and, and offer salvation? Look at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. This is, this, is, this is monergism as opposed to synergism. But God, right? Here's the problem. You're dead, you're enslaved, you're condemned. What hope do we have? God, Ephesians 2 verse 4. Well, what about God? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? See, he states the problem again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? made us alive together with Christ. And, and this theme, like a chorus in a song, is going to repeat two times. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. Not a cooperative program. His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, here's that theme again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Through faith, which is not your own doing. Don't separate those ideas. By grace, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is what? It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. God took the initiative. God took the action to reverse our condition. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are objects of wrath. We are children of wrath like all of mankind. But God chose to show mercy. Why? Because I believed. Okay, be careful. 
Because you'll start taking the path back to Rome if you're not careful. Ephesians 2.4 Why did God choose to show mercy? Because of the great love with which He loved us. We love God because He what? He first loved us. Paul assembles now four words to explain the origin of God's saving initiative. And I'll just walk through these. I'll give you the reference. God's mercy, verse 4. God's love, verse 4. God's grace, verse 5 and 8. God's kindness, verse 7. Boy, if you just jump back into the last one, grace alone. His mercy, His love, His grace and kindness. I'm dead. Right? I'm enslaved. And I'm condemned. But God, in His mercy, in His love, in His grace, in His kindness. So what of faith? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. So what of faith then? Because we're not robots. I mean, we would all agree with that. We're not sort of pre-programmed and simply just, you know, when a button is pressed, the arm goes up. I'm not going to keep doing that. You know, but, you know, that, that brings no pleasure to a living God. We're not pre-programmed robots uh, that are just sort of, you know, following a pre-programmed code. So what a faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, when pressed on this point, I think, and you've been very attentive uh, as we work through this, when pressed on this point, it is very difficult for some people to escape the conclusion that ultimately his or her salvation rests on some righteous act he or she has performed. They chose righteously, and that righteous choice becomes a work. They'll say, no, it doesn't. We're not trying to merit the merit of Christ. We, we understand that's not what it means. But in a sense, if that's, if that's sort of the line you take, in effect... We said we've merited the merit of Christ. So what of faith? The gospel declares that repentance and faith, commands of God, are themselves God's working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. 2 Timothy 2.25, Ephesians 2.5 and 8. And not something that the sinner himself contributes towards the price of his salvation. I think we can all agree on that statement. That repentance and faith, commands of God, are themselves God's already working in us by His Spirit, right? The Helper's going to come and He's going to convince you of the sin of unbelief. He's already at work. And not something, repentance and faith, that the sinner himself contributes towards the price of his salvation. God regenerates, God disarms the opposition of the human heart. God undoes unbelief. God subdues the hostility of the carnal mind. God makes alive. He brings life out of death. God is loved because He first loved us. We were His enemies. We didn't love God. We did not naturally love our Creator. As John Calvin wrote, If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, which strips us of all commendations, it follows that salvation does not come from us. Do we exercise faith? Yes. Is it a meritorious work? Absolutely not. Again, if on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, 
which strips us of all commendations, it follows that salvation does not come from us. So it is Jesus, whom Romans 3.25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What is propitiation? Big word. So if we're children of wrath, and the wrath of God hangs over our head, we need someone to propitiate that, to appease the wrath of God, or as Christ did, he absorbed the wrath of God. And who did that? Whom God put forward as a propitiation and the appeasement of wrath by his blood, whose blood? Christ's, to be received how? By faith. That's what Romans 3.25 says. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through, what's the next word? Faith. John 5.24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said by emphasizing the truth of sola fide. The way of reaching this state of justification is not by tears, nor prayers, nor humblings, nor working, nor Bible reading, nor church going, nor chapel going, nor sacraments, nor priestly absolution, but by faith, which faith is a simple and utter dependence and believing in the faithfulness of God, a dependence upon the promise of God because it is God's promise and is worthy of dependence. That's what faith is. It's trusting that it's all about God. And it's by grace alone. So in conclusion, let me just kind of clarify this. Sort of three more questions. What is the source and status of faith? Is it the God-given means whereby the God-given justification is received? Or is it a condition of justification which is left to man to fulfill? Is it a part of God's gift of salvation or is it man's own contribution to salvation? Is our salvation entirely of God or does it ultimately depend on something that we do for ourselves? Here's the answer. It is the God-given means whereby justification is received. It is part of God's gift of salvation and it is entirely of God. So when Jesus comes and he says, repent and believe, how should you respond? By faith. By faith. Believe. Don't have a hardened heart of unbelief. Don't resist the Spirit's promptings. Don't attribute the work of Jesus to demons. So what about James 2? We've got, we've got to finish here. We can't just leave that thread sort of hanging um, back to Luther's contention with this so-called letter of straw. And I'm just going to read the tension. So Paul writes in Galatians 2, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. True or false? Go ahead. You can answer that. True or false? I just read scripture. That's a hint. It's true. Okay, it's true. Um, now, James wrote in James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. True or false? Yeah, the, the, the hint is again, I just read directly from God's word. Sola Scriptura, true. It's true. These are not contradicting truth claims. Here's what James is saying. The faith alone through which God saves by his grace alone is never alone. It is always confirmed, substantiated by an evident transformation. That's why we call it being born again. It's not about propositional truth statements. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. Very important theological point. You do well, even the demons believe, and there's an emotional reaction. They tremble. J.C. Ryle, um, Brother Chuck sent this quote to me. He said, true Christianity is not merely the believing of a certain set of theological propositions. It is to live in daily personal communication with an actual living person, Jesus, the Son of God. And then he quotes Galatians. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or James. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, So James does not support a works-based righteousness. In conclusion, turn to Luke 19. Then we're done. The numbers on the monitor are red, which is bad for me. It means I'm out of time. Okay, we're going to go and talk about, I don't know how this ever made it into a song, A Wee Little Man. How did that ever pass for a children's song lyric? I have no clue. We don't go around calling each other wee little people. Anyway, this this wee little man climbed a sycamore tree. You know the story, right? And, uh, but this, this is a lot better than just a children's song Jesus entered Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was, you're expecting to see a wee little man. It doesn't say that. There was a man named Zacchaeus. It does talk about his height in just a second. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Therefore, he is hated in his community. He's working for Rome. He's betrayed his people. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. There you go. In the, in the Greek, wee little man. Okay. <laughs> So he ran on ahead. I love this kind of this anticipation. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, and just kind of recreate this. He looks up into the sycamore tree. There's this man of small stature. And he says, Zacchaeus, although he knew his name, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Listen, you better get used to that with Jesus. That's what he does. He seeks and saves lost people. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, listen to his statement. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And what does Jesus say? Verse nine. And Jesus said to him today, what? Salvation has come to this house. Why? Zacchaeus did not present a doctrinal statement. He did not talk systematic theology. Faith evidenced by works. This is exactly what James is teaching. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I'm going to ask this to you this morning. In conclusion, do you believe? 
Jesus came preaching, repent and believe. Would you respond to God's gracious work and believe? For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, Jesus said. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. How should we respond as believers if we've already believed? Express deep gratitude to God for allowing his wrath to be poured out on a substitutionary sacrifice in your place, his son. Romans 3, 23 to 25, last text. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's pray.